every time I talk to my agent, he's like, it's like, we're at a funeral together. And he's just like, yeah, maybe, maybe there'll be some leftover potato salad when we get to the reception. Oh my God. Hi, it's Lindsay Hunter. I'm the host of I'm a Writer But, a podcast where writers talk to a writer about anything. I, I get it. If people don't want to read about like the adult diapers that you wear after you have a baby, like that's totally fine. But let's not pretend that those can't be just as literary as like, I don't know, you know, Philip Roth's direction. <laughs> I wish you a, a wide audience, but you know, for this episode, you know, I feel like maybe people will turn it off a couple minutes in and that's okay with me. I'm a Writer But is a production of Lit Hub Radio and is available now wherever you get your podcasts. The vocation we have chosen is a veil of tears. I'm John Burnham Schwartz, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Page, the best of the Sun Valley Writers Conference. Today I'm speaking with David Eagleman, who not only teaches neuroscience at Stanford University, he's CEO and co-founder of Neosensory, a company that develops devices for sensory substitution. And he's the author, most recently, of Live Wired, the inside story of the ever-changing brain, as well as The Brain, the story of you, and many other books. And he's the host of the new Netflix documentary, The Creative Brain. And not only all that, but his short story collection, Some, inspired YouTube producer Brian Eno to write 12 new pieces of music, which they performed together at the Sydney Opera House. That must have been fun. So there's little about our brains and how we use them, or don't, that David Eagleman isn't cogitating about most hours of the day. As we'll hear in a moment, he's a spirited and enlightening guide to so many important biological and moral issues underpinning our lives and behaviors. From QAnon and cults, to the wiring of Trump's brain, to the relationship between identity, personality, biology, empathy, legal culpability, and much, much more. So, let's jump right in. David, it's great to talk to you again. Welcome. Hey, John, it's great to be here. I'm really glad you've joined. Thanks so much. So first of all, back to brain plasticity and live wired. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that and about what drew you to that aspect of neuroscience for your latest book. Yeah. So, you know, I've been studying the brain for the past 25 years now. And when you look at a textbook, you see, okay, this is the visual system. This is the auditory part. This is where you feel what's going on. But in fact, brains are tremendously fluid. And every moment of your life, your brain is actually reconfiguring itself. You've got 86 billion neurons. These are the specialized cell types in the brain. And your whole life, they're changing their connection strength with one another. They're unplugging, they're seeking, they're replugging. It's like a huge forest going on in there that's alive. And somehow the textbook picture just doesn't capture that adequately. And so for years, I've really wanted to write a book about brain plasticity. That's the term we use in the field, plasticity. But I actually think that term mm -hmm. is a little underwhelming because the, the original reason for that term was because the material that we call plastic is something that you can mold into shape and it'll hold that shape. That's what's special about plastic. 
And so William James, the great psychologist, thought, oh, maybe, you know, brains are kind of like that. You learn that my name is David Eagleman, and there's a change in your brain that holds. Hmm. But I think plastic is a totally underwhelming term now that we know so much about what these 86 billion neurons are actually doing and how they're a, a living, you know, what's happening under the hood is essentially a, a living three-dimensional fabric. And so a lot of Live Wired, and I urge you to read it, deals with how the brain continues to grow and evolve as we grow and evolve throughout our lives. And it's, it's sort of an incredible under-the-hood partnership, if you will. But, but all of this got me thinking, too, about the whole question of the brain as a piece of, I guess you'd say, biological hardware, which in turn kind of re reminded me of part of the talk you gave back in Sun Valley. And I would just love to, if we could listen to a little clip of that and get us off on that direction for a moment. So let's, let's take a listen. So let me start with the story of Phineas Gage, which some of you may know, but this was a young railroad worker in the 1880s here in, uh, in the States, in Virginia. And his job was to, um, so, so what the railroad would do is dig holes and put gunpowder in them and then uh, cause a series of explosions to make room for the railroad tracks. And so his job was just to go around with this tamping rod and tamp down the gunpowder before the, the explosion would be set off. So he would tamp this stuff down. And what happened is one day, somebody forgot to put the sand on top of the gunpowder. And so it was just raw gunpowder and he hit a rock and it caused a spark and it caused an explosion. And the tamping rod blew through his head. It, there was an explosion, it blew through his head and the tamping rod landed about 100 yards away. It clattered to the ground. The reason this became a very famous medical case is because he didn't die, and in fact, he didn't even lose consciousness. And the first doctor who showed up at the scene didn't even believe what had happened from what people had just told him until Phineas Gage leaned over and coughed and a teaspoonful of brain fell out on the dust, and then the doctor realized something really big had just happened. But here's why it became a really, really famous medical case, is because immediately Phineas Gage's personality changed. He was now a different person. So he had been a very nice young man that everyone liked before. Now um, he became, in, you know, after healing up in the successive days, he became a drinker, a cusser, he slept with prostitutes. He was just a completely different kind of person. And the people who knew him said, Gage is no longer Gage. He's just somebody else now. And this was one of the first examples in the medical literature where we, you know, people started realizing, wow, you really are your brain, and when your brain changes, so do you. So we have this story about Phineas Gage losing a literal piece of his brain in a freak accident. And isn't there a story in Live Wired about a boy who, for medical reasons, had to have half his brain removed? Could, can you tell that story? Yeah, this was actually a kid that I had uh, known in Albuquerque where I grew up. He had a form of very severe epilepsy known as Rasmussen's encephalitis, uh, which caused seizures every few minutes. And so it turned out the only approach to this clinically is to remove half of the brain. It's called a hemispherectomy. And you can mm. imagine what it's like as a parent to send your six-year-old kid into something like that. But it turns out you're just fine. It turns out that when you are young, the brain is so plastic, so flexible, that what you can do is remove half of it and it still works. The remaining real estate says, oh, okay, I'll finish wiring up all the functions that would have existed over here. I'll keep it over there. So, you know, he turned out to be fine. And, and hemispherectomies, in fact, are not uh, terribly rare. 
uh, surgery. Really? And yeah. And so, so the brain at a young age is extraordinarily flexible. As it gets older, though, if you lose part of your brain, it's, uh, it's typically fatal. Phineas Gage's case was unusual because mm-hmm. uh, it, it didn't kill him. So in Phineas Gage's story, we have a man who loses part of his brain and changes to the point where he no longer seems at all like the person he, he's been, like who he was. It's as if he's somebody else. But then in the second story, at a younger age, a boy, he loses much more of his brain. I mean, half his brain. But he manages to remain actually himself. Amazing. So that leads me to ask you, I mean, who, who are we? I mean, are we more than our biology? And if so, how much more and, and why? Not to give you too big a question. Well, it's an easy enough question to answer. We, we are our biology. And the reason we know that is because of the hundreds of thousands of cases, just like Phineas Gage's, which is when somebody gets damage to their brain, whether through a traumatic brain injury or a tumor or a stroke or um, you know, a penetrating blow like what happened to Gage, um, y- you change. Uh, same thing happens with uh, when you drink alcohol or when you take drugs of various sorts. You actually mm-hmm. change the kinds of decisions you make, how we define who you are, those things change when your biology changes. And, and that's how we know that this is the densest representation of you in your body. Um, yeah, the rest of the body is involved a little bit, but it's sort of like the greater metropolitan area compared to the urban center. The brain, the three pounds of the brain is, is who you are. And when that changes, you change. It's a great segue to the second clip I wanted to play, which is we're sort of making the move in a way, seems to me, a layman, from the internal to the external, to how changes in the brain or things that affect the brain then change our selves, our behaviors, decision-making, which then leads to changes out in society. So let's take a listen to this clip, and then I have a host of questions for you about how that leads into the world we've been living in this past year or more and uh, how you see it, because I'm hoping you can make sense of it in a way I have not been able to. Here we go. None of the people that I've talked about would have chosen to have these kind of changes, but we are tied to whatever's happening under the hood. And of course, this is something we've always known. People all the time pour ethanol over their mucosal membranes to make themselves funnier at parties and so on. People have known since ancient times that you can do this sort of thing. Uh, Drugs of all sorts influence who you are, the kind of decision-making you do. So the way that decision-making changes on drugs, this is just something that when your biology changes, you change. Um, Medications of all sorts can change how you decide. So for example, some of you may know about Parkinson's medications that have led people to become compulsive gamblers. So people are on these Parkinson's medications, these um, people who have no problem with gambling, suddenly they start blowing their family's fortune on uh, you know, in Atlantic City or Vegas or on online gambling. Why? It's because Parkinson's disease involves a deficit in a neurotransmitter called dopamine. But dopamine is also involved in decision-making and in risk aversion. And when you crank up the levels of dopamine, people want to take higher risks. And so people become compulsive gamblers. So now it is printed on the medication as one of the, um, as one of the things that the doctors need to watch for, and they titrate the medication appropriately so that they're getting the effects on the Parkinson's, but not so much that the person becomes a gambler. 
So what this means is you are your biology. So, okay, so here's the bottom line. Nowadays, when we talk about morality and decision-making, what we're really talking about is the neural basis of this because you can't escape this issue. When you look at somebody, you say, oh, well, he's behaving badly, but I make terrific decisions and so on. What you're really talking about is the state of, of your brains in both these cases. And this leads to some very interesting places, which is, do we have free will? Is the mind separate from the brain? Or are these things inextricably linked? And it seems like everything we know about brain damage and narcotics and how you make judgments about anything, attractiveness, professions, whatever, your attachment behavior, all this stuff suggests that the physical equals the mental. And so this is an unsolved you know, mystery that causes a lot of debate about whether we have free will or not. But I think what is clear at this point is that if we have free will at all, it is a bit player in the system. It's just the smallest bit of what's going on because the rest of our biology is behaving in a certain way that we are slave to, that we are subject to. And uh, if we have it at all, it's very small. And, you know, I mean, you can just try whatever your sexual orientation is, try switching that, you know, join the other team. Good luck, right? Because it's a biological issue. There's nothing you can do about that sort of thing. And so the temptation is, when we look at the, uh, somebody who's committed a crime, to say you've done, you know, you've done something terrible, but the question is, would we, ha were we to have their brains do exactly the same thing? Now, the problem is, you know, the brain you have comes about from, from this interaction of the genetics that you come to the table with combined with all of the experiences you have from day one, your family of origin, your neighborhood of origin, everything that happens to you as a child. These things interact with the genetics you're born with to give the current version of you and then you find yourself in some situation and you act in a certain way. And so what happens is that brains go off on very different trajectories from the beginning, from development as a child. Brains go off in very different ways. And so, you know, if you look around a room at the diversity in people's faces, just how different faces are, there's that much diversity in people's brains too. People's brains are really different on the inside. And this, of course, explains a lot about politics and people voting for Trump and so on. It's the thing about, <laughs> it's the thing about people have very different brains on the inside. So, what I'm leading up to here is this issue about what does this mean when we talk about culpability? There is so much to unpack here. Just great stuff. Questions about how external things such as drugs affect the brain. Questions about the existence of free will, an amazing, huge question. About crowd behavior, moral culpability, and also about empathy. So let's just start there for a sec. Are we naturally wired for empathy? Um, it's sort of the opposite. We're naturally wired for us versus them. And it's incredibly easy to get people into these things of, okay, this is my team and there's the other team. And uh, we've done studies in my laboratory where we take people, you put them in a scanner, a brain scanner, and we show them six hands on the screen. And then the computer goes around doo -doo 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 -doo, and picks a hand randomly. And you see that hand get stabbed with a syringe needle. Hmm. And it's very aversive to watch this. What happens is a particular network in your brain lights up, which is essentially your pain network. But of course, it's not your hand getting stabbed. You're just watching someone else's hand get stabbed. But nonetheless, you have Empathy, this is the neural basis of empathy, is you're seeing someone else in pain and your brain cares. It's like it's simulating it for itself. Now what we do, after we've measured this and baselined it, we add a one-word label to each hand. 
Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, Scientologist, atheist. Hmm. And then the computer goes around, picks a hand, you see the hand gets stabbed. And the question is, does your brain care as much if it's a member of your outgroups versus a member of your in-group? And the answer is, that's exactly what happens. Your brain cares more about your in-group. And this is true across all in-groups. You know, we measured everyone, including atheists, by the way. So this isn't even an indictment of religion. It's just about in-groups and out-groups, who you associate with. The thing is, this stuff is remarkably flexible. So mm -hmm. when we then say in our next experiment, look, the year is 2025, and these three religions have teamed up against these three religions. So now it's exactly the same religions you saw before, but two of them are on your side now. So when you see them get stabbed, your brain cares more than it did, because now I've just told you in one sentence that they are allies of yours. And then finally, we brought people in and gave them something totally arbitrary where we said, look, toss this coin, and if it's heads, you're a Justinian, and if it's tails, you're an Augustinian. So they toss the coin, they get a little bracelet that tells them which team they're on, and then they go in the scanner and they see Augustinian hands get stabbed or Justinian hands get stabbed. And depending on which team they totally arbitrarily just got assigned to, they care more about that team versus the other team. So this is very much something we are wired to be like. And, and one of the big challenges for society, I think, is to figure out how to get ourselves above this basic wiring of ours. That's what I was going to ask about, because obviously in these recent years, above all, not that it hasn't happened before, we're living in a time of rabid, violent partisanship that now seems to be sort of the new normal. And you have all of this experience seeing sort of the biological origins of some of this. And I wonder, do you feel that there's a role for neuroscience in political understanding, if you will, or in oh, sure. civic understanding? Oh, yes. I, I think it is absolutely necessary if we want to get ourselves out of this third grade behavior that the whole nation seems to be in the middle of. You know, this is actually the topic of my next book that I'm writing now. And a part of it has to do with, look, the job of the brain is to make an internal model of the outside world because mm -hmm. your brain is locked in silence and darkness and its job is just to try to figure out how the world operates. And it's, it's quite good at that. But what it builds is this model that it always assumes is complete. And so there's this very weird phenomenon that all of us pretty much always believe that we are correct. Whatever your political view is, you think, okay, well, I'm correct. And anyone who doesn't agree with me is either a maniac or they're purposely being disagreeable or whatever the thing is. And, you know, it's important to note that everyone on all sides of the argument feels this way. Of course. Um, and they feel like, gosh, if I could just convince you, if I could just talk to you long enough, you would come to see that I am right about this. And so this has to do with the wiring of our internal models. It's very difficult to step outside of our model and see other points of view. And our models, of course, come about from a lifetime of experience, as well as genetic predispositions. But in the end, when you're an adult, you feel like you've got a pretty good take on the world and, and everyone else is, uh, is a little bit crazy. So in the case of, just to take a recent piece of the news and of what's going on, let's take the case of QAnon, okay? And a related aspect, perhaps, depending on your perspective, might be cults, okay? How do we think about unwiring people on either side of the spectrum who have conditioned themselves or been conditioned to see the world 
through such a lens. Yeah, I'm, I think this is one of the big challenges. Um, to my mind, one good entry road is through this issue of empathy mm-hmm. and figuring out what we can do to not get our us versus them mechanisms in the way. So just as one example, you know, lots of companies started some years ago when interviewing candidates, for example, Google, when they interview coders, they just have them submit scraps of code, but they don't know their name, their ethnicity, their gender, anything like that. <laughs> um, there's this famous story about the the violin auditions where you put the violin player behind a screen. So you can't tell if it's a man or a woman, black or white, anything like that. And you just listen to how good the violin playing is. So there are ways we can do things like that. I think there's also a really important role here for what's known as metacognition, which is to say, I might immediately have a knee-jerk reaction as in, oh, that person's on the opposite team that I am. But Mm -hmm. if we train ourselves and our children to have metacognition, to think, okay, well, look, fundamentally, I know that's just these basic networks that are speaking up and I can try to override that. And then the third thing, which I've really been a proponent of, is trying to figure out how to complexify our relationships with one another. So in this Economist article, actually, I I told the story about this Iroquois leader, this tribe of Native Americans in the northern part of America and in Canada that had five tribes. And for years, they fought mercilessly with each other, these five tribes. And a guy came to power who came to be known as the great peacemaker. And what he did is he implemented this system of clans where he said, look, you belong to this tribe, but each of you also belongs to a clan. So you, John, are in the elk clan, and you, David, are in the bear clan, and so-and-so's in the squirrel clan, and so on. And then these cross-cut against the tribe lines. So in other words, you and I might be in opposite tribes, but we share the clan that we're in, or vice versa. We're in opposite clans, but we share a tribe. And so what this did, it, it sort of made it more difficult to say, oh, well, that's clearly someone on the other team. Mm-hmm. because it was more complexified. I think this was a brilliant move, and I'm very interested in figuring out other ways to implement this in modern life, whether that's with sports teams or the clothes you wear, or the car you drive, or whatever it is. How, how can we get the left and right to see each other in more human ways? That is a great story, partly because when you hear about stories from the past of things that happen, you sort of think, well, how to judge that relative to today? But when I hear you tell that story. When I first read it in your piece, you immediately think, yeah, that would work at every age. It could work in school. It could work for adults. It could work in government. So let's put on the neuroscientist hat, which you wear all the time for a moment here and say, let's take that story. And if you were running that as a test group in your lab, and they were the people in that group who had five representatives, as it were, from other clans, and they were all wired up, and you were watching the patterns of their brains over time on all sides, what would you expect to see? Well, one thing that we did with these empathy studies is essentially developed a metric for how much you consider them a them versus an us. Hmm. So what you'd expect to see is greater empathy when you see the person in the other tribe gets stabbed and you think, oh, he's a member of my elk clan and so I really care about him now. And even when they're arguing about something because now they're in the same group, they're going to be going at it, you assume, that they're not all going to agree. Yeah. What happens when you are arguing with someone, like in the midst actually of that 
battle before any resolution? Um, well, well, we know there are different ways to argue with someone if you take them to be a member of your team in some way. You came from the same hometown. You have the same mm-hmm. love of, uh, you know, birds or chess or whatever the thing is. Once somebody, you take them to be a team member in some way, you can have a really good, useful argument with them, a good debate with them, but you don't hate them. Mm-hmm. You, uh, you're interested in hearing their point of view. Yeah. It'd be really interesting if there were some mandate to mix groups in this way. I mean, we do, it is called democracy, so... There is that, but it seems as though somehow it's not quite working as well. So that brings us to yep. the time we're in and, and Donald Trump again, I will say. So I have to ask you because I have you here and I just don't get to... I mean, we all have opinions, but most people's opinions aren't based in the same way. What, frankly, as a neuroscientist, do you make of Don- Donald Trump's brain? I mean this seriously. So a couple things. First of all, the Goldwater rule prevents uh, anybody from making clinical diagnoses <laughs> of someone they haven't seen. But I mean, he, you know, he's clearly Correct. a narcissist. Um, he's clearly very talented at playing a particular kind of role and being a bully and so on. And that's gotten him far. It's gotten him into a position of the most powerful man in the world. What I'm more interested in beyond Trump is what's happened with the both the right and the left, which I think there's an equal mm-hmm. amount of insanity on both sides of it going on. And so, um, you know, it's been fascinating to watch this us versus theming going on. You know, we've all seen that play out over the course of the past few years on Twitter, where it went from having healthy debates about things to saying, you can't even say these words, you can't even talk about this mm-hmm. because you are canceled or you're verboten if it's something you're even touching on. And that's been a real shame to watch. And that's why I feel that this whole thing that I'm working on about complexifying the us and them is possibly more important than ever. It's a really important subject. So going back to the last clip we heard, and it ended at the question of sort of culpability and and accountability, I would say, moral accountability. So January 6th, we have the riot on the Capitol. And we then had the impeachment trial, our hearing as, as quick as it was. But still out there is this question of, yes, everybody's brains are different. And so that raises the question of, and this also gets into cults and QAnon and the rest of it, how do we hold people accountable for, in a public sphere, for this kind of behavior? Yeah. Well, that's easy. That's what the legal system is for. So the legal system draws lines Mm -hmm. in the sand and says, look, you can do whatever you want. You can believe whatever you want, but you can't, you know, hurt another person or hit them with a fire extinguisher or shoot them. And that's where you've crossed the line. That's when you're in trouble with the law. And so one thing about the intersection of neuroscience and the law, which is very important to understand, is that it doesn't let anybody off the hook. If somebody is behaving badly and doing something that's socially you know, it doesn't allow a society to move forward appropriately, then that person has to be taken off the streets. The whole point of putting neuroscience and law together is to understand what can we do from here? Now, this isn't about somebody's political beliefs, whether they're from Magistan or Wokistan. It's not about that. It's about things like, do people have brain tumors? Do people have strokes? Do they have degenerative disorders? Things like that. And the question is, what can we do to help them moving forward. Again, it doesn't let anybody off the hook. It doesn't exculpate anybody. But what it leads to is rational sentencing and customized rehabilitation. 
And that differs from the current system that we run, which is, you know, incarcerating everybody and imagining that that's the appropriate one size fits all solution, Mm -hmm. which it's not. You know, our prison population has gone up eightfold since Nixon declared the war on drugs, just as an example. And it's not like we're putting the cartel bosses in jail. We're putting the people who are caught with two ounces of of a controlled substance. Mm -hmm. And we know so much in neuroscience about drug addiction. That's not the right place to put somebody with a drug addiction. It doesn't help them. It doesn't break their addiction. What it does, some form of mental illness. Hmm. And we used to have mental institutions in America. And then when there was deinstitutionalization, that whole population flowed to our prison systems. It's our de facto mental health care system. That would all be arguable for if it worked, but it clearly doesn't work. And, you know, we could talk about the morality all day long, but also it's expensive. It's just not a very efficient system the way we've got it set up. Mm-hmm. So this is where neuroscience comes in to see how are the ways that we can fix that system so that we have specialized mental health courts, specialized drug courts, things like this, and we can root people forward appropriately. It's really interesting. What sort of receptivity do you find at the policy level yeah. for neuroscience and neuroscientists to get involved? I'm really happy to say that everybody's in favor of it. And in part, this is because we've done a very careful job of showing the cost savings of this. In fact, one thing I've noticed is that most counties don't care about the message that I'm transmitting until they run out of money, until they say, gosh, you know what? Our jail is so overcrowded. We need to build a second jail, but we can't afford it. We are totally out of money. So then they start looking towards these things and say, you know what? If we build a specialized mental health court and drug court and so on, we can actually save money here by rooting people into rehab programs and so on. So this is as it ever was, where when people get financially pinched, that's when they start Mm -hmm. doing smarter ideas. Yep. So uh, speaking of mental health and different kinds of prisons, we are virtually at a year of this pandemic going on. And I have a 15-year-old, you have kids, we're at home. And I really want to ask you, What do you think are going to be the effects? Yeah. I mean, because of plasticity, our brains become, you know, what we do with our time and what we are feeding our kids, not diet-wise, but what they're doing in terms of the information they're taking in, in terms of the activities they're doing. So, unfortunately, our kids are all going to turn out differently. Now, there's no way to know what they would have turned out to be. But, you know, if you've ever known somebody let's say in your grandparents' generation, who lived through the Great Depression, they have all kinds of weird habits, like they'll save a tea bag or they'll save a little plastic bottle and say, well, you know, I'll do something else with it. I'll put some flowers in it, whatever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we all grew up and sort of made fun of that generation and so on. But I think for the rest of their lives, our lives and our kids' lives, they're going to have weird habits as a result of this, like not getting close to people, not shaking hands, you know, crossing the sidewalk Mm. to the other side when they see somebody coming. Um, Yeah, it kind of breaks my heart. But as I said, we have no way of knowing, we have no way of running the control experiment to know what they would have turned out to be. But I think this will leave its scars on all of us. Yeah. It would have been different had this lasted two weeks as we originally thought when we all went into shutdown. We thought, great, this is going to be a weird two weeks. Mm. But, you know, it's, it's long enough that it's affected who we are as people now. And we all, of course, have our own strangenesses that we may not even be aware of that got into us when we were kids in whatever difficult times we all went through. And as a novelist as well, I deeply appreciate that observational quality you bring to these questions, both of science and also of our social fabric. So, David, I could listen to you all day, and 
Really looking forward to seeing you in Sun Valley. You're coming back this summer, and we are all obviously optimistic, but we're also really counting on being together and having public and private conversations in person again. But the work you're doing is really important and just deeply interesting. So I can't thank you enough for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Great. Thanks, John. All right. It's great to talk to you again. I cannot wait to see you this summer. (laughs) Me too. Take care of yourself. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Beyond the Page. You can catch previous podcast episodes, as well as installments of SVWC Now, our series of video conversations, at lithub.com or at the Sun Valley Writers Conference website, svwc.com. I'm John Burnham Schwartz. Thanks so much for listening. Beyond the Page is produced by John Burnham Schwartz and James Tooley. Original music by Dean Grinsfelder and production support provided by Jay Shelliday. Thank you.